Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're going to be exploring homeopathy, which has been around for a long time, hundreds of years. And we have one of the experts in the United States, Dana Ullman, who's written quite a bit about it and really has dedicated a significant portion of his professional life to practicing homeopathy. So welcome and thank you for joining us, Dana. My pleasure. Real, real deep pleasure. So perhaps you can give uh, our viewers a um, history of how you got interested in this field and a little bit about your journey into health and healing. Great. Well, my father is a medical doctor. He was a pediatrician and an allergist. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of cosmic irony there because allergy is that use of very small doses of what people are allergic to, to help desensitize them. And then uh, I remember when I was young, my father got me one of those little children's medical kits with a little stethoscope, a little reflex thing that my older brother took to hit me on my head to test my reflexes. Um, and it even had a little bottle of sugar pills in it. So I've been prescribing these sugar pills ever since. <laughs> but it was when I was a junior at UC Berkeley uh, where I was beginning to explore different natural therapies, uh, nutrition, um, body therapies, botanical medicine, uh, and I got introduced to homeopathy. And what ended up happening was is a Stanford-trained doctor and a male midwife began to create a group of people to study homeopathy together. This was the back in the beginning of 1973. And it became three doctors, two nurses, two yoga teachers, a dentist, and several lay people. And we met weekly for five years. Hmm. And then uh, towards the end of that, I was honored to be arrested for practicing medicine without a license. That was back in 1976. And we won an important court settlement uh, by differentiating medical care from health care. And uh, we made it clear that I wasn't treating a disease. I was treating a person with a disease. And uh, the courts agreed that that was a reasonable interpretation. And that as long as I have written contracts with my patients that differentiate medical care from health care, and as long as I refer patients for medical care, which is not what I'm providing, then, then it can work out. So that was back in 1976, and I've been doing that ever since. Quite a journey. Yeah. So why don't you uh, provide us with a definition of what homeopathy is? Because I'm sure most everyone here has heard the term, but there are probably a number who are not quite familiar with the principles sure. that were People developed in by Hahnemann, yeah. I believe, in, in Germany. Yes. People in Europe are much more familiar with homeopathy because it's really one of the leading alternative therapies there. Um, and although homeopathy was the leading alternative therapy in America in 1900, in America, where there were 22 homeopathic medical schools, including Boston University, University of Michigan, New York Medical College was called New York Homeopathic Medical College. Even the Ohio State, University of Minnesota, and even the radical University of Iowa, right in middle America, were all homeopathic. So what homeopathy is, is a type of natural medicine that uses nanodoses, really small doses of plants, minerals, animals, chemicals, and we look to find whatever toxicological symptoms that substance causes. And once you know what syndrome of symptoms a substance causes in the toxic dose, you can use specially prepared, and we'll get into the details of that later, nano-sized doses of that substance to treat that similar syndrome that it causes. And the logic of all that, for those of us that believe in evolution, and I assume that's the vast majority of us, those people that believe in evolution believe that our body does whatever it can to survive. And our symptoms are not the result of breakdown, but our symptoms are the result of that doctor inside of us that is trying to defend us and trying to heal us. And so our symptoms are part of our defenses. And the very word symptom means sign or signal. And our symptoms are just doing just that. They're signaling us that something's wrong. 
So instead of turning off that signal, in homeopathy, you turn into the skid. And one of the things that each of our driver's education teachers probably taught us is that when you skid, you turn into the skid. And although at first blush, that's hard to understand, the physics supports it, that when you turn into the skid, that's the best way to have get control of the vehicle and come to a, a, a stop more easily. Okay, you'd refer to it as the original nanomedicine, but that's right. I, I would take issue with that because nano is a very precise scientific term that is basically a billionth. Yeah. Uh, and it's my understanding of homeopathy that many, if not most, of the therapies you're using are far lower concentrations than a billion. Well, you know, at first blush, you might think that, but let me explain how and why homeopathy is a nanomedicine. Mm -hmm. And there was, uh, the American Chemistry Society is not a homeopathic organization. Mm -hmm. It's not a natural organization. It's the chemists of America. And they publish a journal called Lang Mirror. And one of the studies that they published in 2012 was done where they tested six homeopathic medicines all metals, gold, silver, copper, tin, zinc, and platinum. And they diluted them in three different dilutions, one to 106 times, one to 130 times, and one to 100, 200 times. Now there's this important principle in chemistry that says that if you dilute something one to 100 just 12 times, in all probability you should have any of the original molecules left. But here's what actually goes on, because that's just a mathematical uh, estimation. What actually goes on is this, and it's quite amazing. In homeopathy, we use uh, test tubes made out of glass. Mm -hmm. We made test tubes out of glass because we thought that glass was inert. But guess what? It isn't. And modern spectroscopy can find that if you take a double distilled water, which is the highest grade pharmaceutical grade water that is presently known. In other words, they distill it once and then they distill it again. But if you shake it vigorously in a glass container, the bubbles and the nanobubbles, and that is a technical word, nanobubbles, it blanches against the side walls and six parts per million of silica fragments fall off into the, into the water. Then what they find is, is that the vigorous shaking, the 40 shakings, create this turbulence and increase the water pressure to what the head of Stanford's Department of Material Science estimated to be at 10,000 atmospheres due to this vigorous shaking. So what that means is whatever you're making into a medicine will be pushed into these silica fragments. Then when you dump out the water, 99% of the water to make a dilution, a lot of the fragments cling to the glass walls. Mm -hmm. So this study published in this journal, published by the American Chemistry Society, found that no matter how many times you did these dilutions, three different types of spectroscopy measured the original gold, silver, copper, tin, zinc, or platinum in the water. And guess what? Our bodies, uh, hormones and a lot of our neurotransmitters operate at nanodose levels and they actually found nanodoses of each of these substances no matter how many times they did this dilutions. Did, did, it, did it matter if it was diluted in the same test tube or was it new to uh, alter the observations? You know, that's a good question. No one's ever asked me that question before. It tells me how smart you are, Joe. Anyway, I'm impressed. But in homeopathy, there's a type of, of making the medicines where they keep the original test tube and another type of manufacturer where they use a different test tube. But ultimately, when you're throwing, uh, when you're keeping that 1% or 10%, because sometimes a medicine is diluted 1 to 10. And whenever you see a homeopathic medicine like this is 6x. X is a Roman numeral for 10. That means it was diluted 1 to 10, 6 times or 12 times or 30 times. Mm -hmm. And when it has a C after it, that's a Roman numeral for centesimal. And that means it was diluted 1 to 100. And there's M's, which would be 1,000, right? Well, so if they dilute it, you know, uh, uh, 
a 2x or 2c will be 1 to 1000 but remember along so, with the water is some of these silica fragments but aren't there m concentrations too oh there is an uh, no m yes m stands for a thousand right. so that means it was diluted one to a hundred one thousand times one thousand times okay. and now we even have fifty thousand a hundred thousand and even more okay. and over 200 years of clinical experience by tens of millions of patients we have consistently found that the more this medicine these medicines go through this potentization process the longer they act, the deeper they act, and the less doses are needed. And there's a good explanation for that, by the way. These nanodoses are able to penetrate the blood-brain barrier and go into deeper recesses of the brain and go through simple cellular membranes with much greater ease than larger doses. Because larger doses set off all these alarms, the membrane locks down whenever any foreign or a uh, substance tries to enter it, let alone the blood-brain barrier is really a very fine mesh that does whatever it can to avoid large and complex molecules from entering the brain. So these nanodoses are able to sift through uh, cellular membranes and blood-brain barriers with much greater ease and then once it's inside the brain, the body realizes we've just been infiltrated by lead or silver or gold. And it says, how do I get rid of it? And when a patient has the symptoms of gold or of the substance that they're having, the body then has a powerful immunological reaction that begins to heal. So this um, dilution, is it done manually? Or is there, there a machine component to it? Where it's done Originally, of course, it was done manually. Yeah, of course. Uh, and during Hahnemann's day, he even sometimes would employ a blacksmith mm -hmm. who would shake it very, very uh, severely. And in fact, in Hahnemann's time, he would also bang it against a book, and that book was commonly a Bible. Mm -hmm. um, uh, now, mind you, there's a great story of, from the Bible that I think might intrigue your listeners. We all know the story of Moses, that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he saw the Israelites um, worshiping the golden calf, as you remember, Moses got very upset. Mm -hmm. And what the Bible did is the Bible got specific and technical and pharmacological. Who'd ever think the Bible would do that? But let me explain. What it said he did is that Moses smashed the golden calf he ground it into a powder. Remember, the calf was made out of gold, which mm -hmm. is a homeopathic medicine. He then strewn it upon the water. He diluted it in water. And even though they're in a desert, the Bible specifically said that he diluted it or put it in water and then has the Israelites drink the water. Now, what's remarkable is that in homeopathy, we use gold for certain physical ailments, including arthritis, and just as uh, doctors of the 20th and 19th century used gold sh shots to treat people with uh, arthritis, um, we also use it for emotional problems when people have depression and deep and dark depression and a certain want of a, a break in their will to live. And that was in part Moses's analysis of the Israelites that they weren't worshiping uh, God, but they were worshiping a golden calf instead. And so it's really quite remarkable that the Bible got uh, interestingly technical in talking about this process of grinding a mineral and then diluting it in water. And um, the bottom line is, is that homeopathy really wasn't made into a medical science and art until a German physician named Samuel Hahnemann came around in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And he was a physician to German royalty. He was the author of the leading textbook used by pharmacists of his day. And he was an avid experimenter. And he kept experimenting to see what toxic substances cause on the human body. And then he would give very small doses. Initially, he would only dilute them a couple times. 
But then after 20 years of using these partially diluted doses, he and his colleagues found the more they did this process of diluting and shaking, diluting and shaking, diluting and shaking, the longer they acted, the deeper they acted, and the less doses were needed. And most of all, the medicines were much safer because when you prescribe the wrong remedy in this nano dose, nothing happens. No side effects, no benefit. Excellent. So let's go back to the <clears throat> history of homeopathy in the United States. You had referenced earlier that there were at least a dozen medical schools yeah. that actually had homeopathy in their at 1900. But then, uh, to my understanding, uh, Rockefeller, John D., yeah. who actually died a few blocks from where I currently live, and uh, Andrew Carnegie got together and decided that they were going to clean things up right. and uh, get rid of the snake oil salesmen and uh, make it more science-based. So right. they provided uh, funding to the medical schools uh, to get on board if they were going to cooperate and essentially gain control of a lot of the boards. So, so, but perhaps you can give your take on it because sure. it, you know, me, it was the beginning of the end. And homeopathy just represented one of the forms of natural medicine. Of course, there are many others that right. essentially got wiped out in 1900, so about 120 years ago. Great. Actually, Rockefeller was not involved with that one. Carnegie was. The Carnegie Foundation did the Flexner Report. But yeah, let me but go he back. Uh, just, too. He, had some, he had some influence with it. Well, I, what ended up happening is the head of the Rockefeller Foundation hired Flexner, who wrote this report. And what the report did, in, in 1900, there were different medical schools. There were conventional or allopathic medical schools. There were homeopathic. There were osteopathic. There were naturopathic. And there were herbalists. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Flexner decided that the only way to really do scientific medicine was according to the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Even though, by the way, the dean of, Ho of Johns Hopkins at the time was William Osler, who was antagonistic to the Flexner Report. So here, Flexner and the AMA was trying to make the uh, medicine in America just like Johns Hopkins, and the head of Johns Hopkins said, don't, don't do that. Mm -hmm. but, but what ended up happening further is, is that in 1899, the new president of the AMA became not just the president of the AMA, but the editor of the journal. Mm -hmm. of the Journal of the AMA. And he created the AMA seal of approval on drugs. And the way to get the seal of approval, you didn't have to prove safety of the drug and you didn't have to prove that it worked. You just had to do two things. One good thing is you had to say what was in your drug. You didn't want any secret formulas and bless them for that. But the second thing you had to agree to do is you had to agree to advertise in every local, regional, and national AMA publication. In other words, you had to give the AMA a lot of money. Yeah. And this was a brilliant form of bribery, and this was what made the AMA rich. Now, what was the name of that editor? I forgot his name. Um, that one was um, George Simmons. Yeah. And then his, um, he was at the AMA for 25 years. And then they finally realized that guy was a total crook. Mm -hmm. And uh, his protege took over. And his protege was worse than him. Because the protege took on and created the AMA seal of approval on foods. And they did the same type of thing. In fact, the second head of the AMA was the one that, that actually... Um, collaborated with tobacco and taught do them how to advertise using doctors. And of course, when he was finally kicked out of the AMA in 1949, uh, he went to work as a lobbyist for tobacco. Mm -hmm. And as soon as he was kicked out, by the way, that is when the new editor began to publish articles about the dangers of tobacco because the AMA originally and for a long time, was protecting the tobacco interests because they were getting a lot of money from them. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, <clears throat> I don't know anyone who has a uh, uh, knows the history of uh, homeopathy as well as you do, and I'm wondering 
uh, if you are aware of the homeopathy's position about that same time and other natural healing disciplines, do they all understand that tobacco was pernicious to your health and should be avoided? Uh, generally, yes. Generally, yes. Uh, in fact, many homeopaths were not just homeopaths, but created spas that had water treatment uh, and hydrotherapy and nutrition. Um, and, and now that wasn't every homeopath because, you know, every, at, believe it or not, at the turn of the century, uh, between 15 to 20 percent of medical doctors define themselves as homeopaths. So this is, um, this is the 19th or the 20th century. 1900, 1900. Right. Um, we, do, we do have the 21st century too. <laughs> by, by, by the way, earlier than all this, there's a one bit of history that I, I want to tell you and your listeners. But in 1860, homeopathy was beginning to gain a lot of traction. Mm -hmm. Homeopathy was already uh, appreciated by the smartest people in America. All, most of the literary greats, the transcendentalists, from Mark Twain and William James and um, uh, uh, Emily uh, Dickinson and Louisa May Alcott and Harriet Beecher Stowe, they were all big advocates for homeopathy. But the AMA was so threatened that they wrote something in their ethics code that said that if any conventional doctor simply consulted with a homeopath on a patient, they would lose their membership in the AMA. And in the 1860s, that meant you lost your medical license. Until finally the homeopaths organized and created separate medical boards. So at least if you got your license revoked from the, the AMA, you can go to the homeopaths. And by I, the I, way, we met I, let women into our organization 30 years before the AMA did. Are you sure they had licensing back then? <clears throat> My understanding that was a development back in the 1900s, not the 1800s. Oh, no, 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 no. There was licensing and there were medical boards. I, I okay. guarantee it. Okay. Uh, in fact, believe it or not, on the night that Lincoln was shot, his mm -hmm. Secretary of State, William Seward, was stabbed because it was a part of an assassination plot. Mm -hmm. And the assassin got into Seward's house because he knew that Seward was a big appreciator and advocate for homeopathy. And he said that he had a delivery from his homeopathic doctor. No. That's a very clever way in. Mm -hmm. As soon as he got into the bedroom, he took out his gun to shoot him and the gun didn't go off. Wow. So he took out his knife and stabbed him seven times. And the closest doctor to him to treat him was the Surgeon General of the United States. And the Surgeon General, who was an allopath, saved his life. Hmm. And then he received homeopathic treatment, but this general was reprimanded by the AMA for treating a homeopathic patient. Can you get how serious and how crazy that type of obstruction of medical practice is? Yeah. But we're doing that today too. Mm -hmm. We're doing that today uh, subtly and not so subtly. And I, I know you know a lot of doctors who are harassed by yeah. orthodox medicine. Yeah, no question. Um, so let's go back to just a simple question before we go into the, the FDA and how it's uh, impacted homeopathy. Um, a similar process is Bach flowers, which I believe started after Hahnemann. Oh, yeah, way after. So maybe you can discuss the difference between the Bach flowers and homeopathic. Sure. Well, actually, you know, he wasn't a German doctor. He was a Scottish doctor. So B-A-C-H, he pronounced it batch. Okay. And I know we've probably for a long time, most Americans call it the Bach flower remedies, but I prefer to call them the batch flower remedies. Okay. He was not just a medical doctor, but also a bacteriologist. And a husband and wife team of medical doctors who are homeopaths showed him that when they treated their patients, their stool culture bacteria would change. And Batch confirmed that with bacterial analysis. So what Batch did was he made potentized doses of different bacteria in the stool from the stool. This is like the original probiotics. So a homeopath would then inoculate the person with a bacteria that may be missing from their 
particular stool as a way of seeding it. So homeopaths are onto that in the 1920s. Yeah, we do it now. That's a century yeah, later. It's with, called phycotherapy. Transplants, right. That's right. That's right. But homeopaths did it, and I do it regularly with my patients. So then... The problem that, is you have to find a healthy person, which is few and far between nowadays. Thanks. Oh, well, yeah, we don't, we don't need that therapy. because what, 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 what they do is, is they just isolate each of the bacteria and they do it that way. But mm -hmm. what he ended up finding that, that if a, a patient was given sulfur, then that patient often had a certain uh, large amount of a certain bacteria in their stools. And if they had pulsatilla, it was another one. If they had nature mirror, it was another one. And so Batch provided really important experimental evidence. But then he went a step further. And that is when he began to use only flowers. Mm -hmm. And he would take the dew off a of flower, which was water. Mm -hmm. And he would dilute it further in a distilled water. And he would take a dose of it and get a feeling for what emotion that particular flower experienced. And then he created his 38 list of, of batch flower remedies. And he created the famous rescue remedy, which was a mixture of the five, five of the leading ones. Okay, do you use those remedies at all? Or? I do, I don't use them a lot because you know, they're, they're not very potentized. So they generally have short-term benefits on a person's emotional and mental health. Okay. And, you know, I try and have deeper acting effect, and that is where these higher potency homeopathic medicines can have a, a longer lasting, deeper effect. And, and, you know, at some point I want to talk about the research that exists for homeopathy because sure. there are over 300 double-blind and placebo-controlled trials published in peer-reviewed medical journals. And all too often, the media says that there's no evidence that homeopathy works. And I just want to make certain that people out there know that there have been studies published in The Lancet, several, the British Medical Journal, several, journals like Pediatrics, the journal Chest, the journal Cancer, the journal Rheumatology, the journal Pediatric Infectious Diseases, and many more. So many of the best journals in the world have published positive studies on homeopathy. So whenever you hear people say that there's no evidence that homeopathy works, they are either misinforming you or directly lying. Well, that's the standard discreditation strategy that yeah, you, right. you know, it's basically adopted by the major PR firms that are hired by these companies that want to uh, engage in this type of manipulation. So it's a very effective strategy, actually. Right. Repeating a lie, you know, often Enough. gets people to believe it. it. Yeah. And it, you have to realize that it's a lie. And then you also have to remember that Big Pharma advertises on our news, TV news, in, so that they can own the news. And that's what's happened. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, even Robert Kennedy Jr., who's been such a great advocate for vaccine safety, one of his old family friends was Rupert Murdoch. And Rupert Murdoch told him, sorry, uh, I can't have you on any of our programs because, you know, we're, we're too connected to big pharma. And, um, you know, that's a one reason why you're not, we're not getting accurate information about natural therapies and about the importance of vaccine safety is because big pharma really runs and owns the news. Sure. So if someone was interested in inquiring more about the studies that you referenced, the hundreds of studies published in these peer reviewed journals, uh, how would they find those? Okay, well, there's many ways. If you connect with me, uh, Dana Ullman, at my website at homeopathic.com. Also, uh, just today, I Homeopathic.com? Yeah, I'm homeopathic.com. Wow, congratulations. I mean, finally, there's you justice in the world. The I'm the right guy to get In the mid-90s. That's right. I also own uh, homeopathicfamilymedicine.com, and I've created an e-course that's called learning how to use a homeopathic medicine kit. Mm -hmm. And so whether you're a mother or father, or just want to learn to, to treat yourself and your friends and family, or whether you're a health or medical professional, and you don't want to, you don't want to become a homeopath, but you want to learn how to use some simple remedies. This e-course includes an e-book, 
And the ebook itself is almost five, is 550 pages and gives specific references and even specific links to the studies. And then it comes with a variety of short videos. Because I, you know, this is the YouTube generation. These are people today want to not only read, but they want to hear a video, watch a video to learn. We learn through different ways, by hearing and watching and by reading. And so this e-course is fine. And if you connect up with me on Twitter, just today I actually linked to a, an Italian website that provided a really good summary of the highest quality research in homeopathy. And that has shown that homeopathic medicines work better than a placebo. Excellent. My ebook, by the way, is called Evidence-Based Homeopathic Family Medicine. So um, I'm oriented towards teaching people that there's not only personal and historical experience, but there is also a scientific body of evidence. I'm going to send you a free copy of the ebook, Joe, well, and access you. to the course. Yeah, that would be interesting. Um, the, um, let's go to now to the FDA because yeah. they have some highly irrational behaviors when it comes to homeopathy. Uh, I mean, there's, there's no other better definition than irrational, truly irrational, because they, on one hand, they're claiming that it's dangerous, and on the <laughs> other hand, they claim there's nothing in it. Yeah. I mean, how, you can't have both ways. It's either one or the other. So, I mean, why don't you address that, and then we'll go into the, some okay. of the well, let me give, once again, I like doing a little bit of history. Yeah. But the FDA was initially created in the early 1900s, mm -hmm. but it really wasn't empowered until 1938 during FDR's reign, where I, a, a senator from New York named Royal Copeland wrote the Federal Food, Drugs, and Cosmetics Act of 1938, which empowered the FDA to regulate drugs. Now, Royal Copeland was not just a senator, he was a medical doctor. And he was not just a medical doctor, he was a homeopathic physician. And he was the dean of the New York Homeopathic Medical College. And before that, he was the mayor of, of Ann Arbor, where he grew up. And he was a professor at the University of Michigan, which had a homeopathic department. And a part of this legislation gave recognition to homeopathy on par with the United States Pharmacopeia. So the United States Pharmacopeia and the homeopathic pharmacopeia were on equal footing. And then in the uh, late 70s, the FDA deemed that homeopathic medicines are primarily over-the-counter drugs. Because they're so basically safe, you don't need a doctor's prescription to use them. And so up to that time, the FDA and the homeopaths had a good working relationship. In fact, up until literally a year or two ago, we had a good working relationship. That, that our medicines were allowed. There were certain medicines that only medical doctors and naturopathic physicians were allowed to prescribe because of that dose of certain dose issues. And we're fine with that too. But the vast majority were over-the-counter drugs. However, in the last year or two, as a result of pressure brought by Big Pharma and by skeptics of homeopathy, they've begun to change the regulations. And we don't know with specificity what they are planning to do. They're saying now that they're changing it from the present model to what's called this risk-benefit model. And because they, their position is that homeopathy provides no benefits. I, we are all concerned and worried that they're going to find little risks in different things like they did with standard or Highlands homeopathic with their teething tablets. Now, Highlands was using the 12X of belladonna. And to be candid, there's virtually no way that uh, a dose made by, in this case, Highlands is the largest homeopathic company in America. And their largest selling product was these teething tablets. 
So this was a way of screwing with them and getting them to stop making that medicine available. And I just know thousands of parents that love those teething tablets. And um, I, you know, I've, I've written about it at your website and I've written about it elsewhere ab about how unlikely it was for there to be toxic amounts of belladonna in their formulas. And, um, you know, I, and I still feel that way. Mm -hmm. All right, so we'll continue this story. I had a quick question though with respect to the homeopathic colleges and medical schools because uh, there was this accreditation effort that occurred in 1910 with the Flexner Report. And then- 1910, yeah, 1910, yeah. Yeah, so then it eventually progressed to the elimination of these, these medical schools, but you just referenced the, phys the physician who implemented the, that law in 1938 with the FDA, but, and he was still a, a functioning uh, homeopathic medical college. And I know when I was in school, I think it was, was it the Hahnemann School in New York? Hahnemann Medical College was, was even teaching homeopathy until 1949. But it's, they still retain the name Hahnemann Medical yeah. College. But they, they changed it at one point, and then the public, who doesn't even know about homeopathy, says, "No, we want Hahnemann back." Yeah, and is they, do they still have that name today? You know, I think they, I think they brought the name back, but you know, I'm not actually clear. Okay. Maybe now they don't Allegheny something. And they don't teach homeopathy. No, they don't teach homeopathy. I don't think so. <laughs> Be surprising if they did. All right, so let me get let me work Rockefeller into this because you you appreciate history. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, John D. Rockefeller loved homeopathy. He called it a, a an important and an aggressive step in medicine. He and his entire board of directors only went to homeopaths. Uh, um, his uh, Rockefeller's own homeopath died at a young age of ninety three, mm -hmm. so he uh, superseded him because he lived to ninety eight. Rockefeller um, lives 98? I thought it was over 100. No, no, 98. Okay. 98. And um, as it turns out, Rockefeller gave away around $500 million in the first three decades of the 20th century. And, and if you want $500 million at that time is like $500 billion. And he wanted half of his money to go to homeopathic institutions. And as it turns out, not a single cent went. And I've been trying to find out, I've been in, in dialogue for a number of years with archivists at the Rockefeller Foundation today, and no one has been able to explain to me what the problem was. And I think that the head of the Rockefeller Foundation lied to Rockefeller and told him that, it was, that money was going and money was never going. Hmm. There's one other amazing story that is worthy of mention. And that is, we're all familiar with the Sloan Kettering Foundation in the hospital. But what people don't know was Kettering was the big advocate for homeopathy. And Kettering was vice president of GM. And Sloan was president of GM. But Kettering was the inventor. He was the one that developed the electric battery. Delco Battery was his company. And before that, he worked for, well, anyway, that's not even important. But uh, So he made the car electronic. And he was, he was second to Edison, has more patents than anyone. And in 1920, he gave a million dollars to Ohio State University for their homeopathic medical school's research department. Well, wouldn't you know it, a month later, that one of the key members of the AMA went to meet with the president of Ohio State and gave him an ultimatum saying that unless you return that million dollars back to Kettering, that the AMA would reduce the grade of Ohio State's allopathic or conventional medical school. Because Ohio State had a homeopathic medical school and an allopathic one. And as it turns out, the president of Ohio State return the million dollars to Kettering that was supposed to go for homeopathic research. But once again, a million dollars in 1920 money yeah. 
is like a billion dollars. Yeah, I was going to say that, right. It's a billion dollars. Yeah, at least 101. And, and there was that much pressure. And, and now that then, at a time in the first three decades, where the Rockefeller Foundation was pumping money, money, money into medical schools, none of it was going into homeopathic medical schools. But to this day, like I said, we don't know how much Rockefeller knew what, what he was doing or not. And when, did the, when did the last homeopathic medical schools shut down? Uh, in 1949, Hahnemann stopped selling, stopped having their last course in homeopathy. Mm. Boston University had their uh, program until the 1930s. Mm. And by the way, Boston used to be entirely homeopathic, and they were the alternative to Harvard. Harvard was the allopathic school, Boston University the homeopathic. Hmm. And then some professors from Boston University created the first women's medical school. And it was, of course, a homeopathic medical school for women. Did they teach conventional medicine? Absolutely. With, you see, part uh, of what, what they It's kind of like osteopathic medicine, where we learn essentially what allopathic medicine does. And in addition to that, we had osteopathic uh, treatment and principles. That's right. That's right. So the homeopathic schools would have a similar body of diagnostics. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's why so many homeopathic MDs made important contributions to conventional medicine because they were making contributions to homeopathy and they were making contributions to conventional medicine. Um, and, and in fact, at Hahnemann, you know, some of the earliest uh, cardiovascular um, treatments were developed. Um, and uh, in, um, in Canada, uh, some of the early anesthesia work was done by homeopathic doctors. Okay. So what's the current state of homeopathy with the FDA? Well, we're waiting for them to actually come out with the, the specifics of their guidelines. Mm -hmm. And we've written to them. Uh, many of us in, in detail making our recommendations and we're now ready for them to respond. And, you know, all I'm going to say is, is that if they choose to take away many of our important homeopathic medicines, I'm confident that they're not going to take away, they say they're going to maintain most of the homeopathic remedies. But I am worried that they may reduce access to what are called homeopathic nozodes. Mm -hmm. And nozodes are homeopathic medicines, super diluted, that are made from different bacteria and viruses. And, um, and as long as they say, okay, well, you see right now, only medical doctors, naturopathic doctors, and professional homeopaths have access to these nozodes. And I'm fine with that. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't want, I, I mean, it would be a real problem. And I know many of us would break the law and we would find means to which we would be prescribing these medicines. We would just call them something else. We would do something else, but we would, we still need to have access to our homeopathic medicines. Now, I want to discuss the placebo effect because you had mentioned earlier the sugar pills and clearly that's what they're mostly put in. Is, that, is it a dextrose? Typically. No, actually, there's some that are lactose, lactose? and some that are sucrose. Sucrose. Way, sucrose. Actual sucrose, sugar. Yeah, no, no, some are sucrose. Now, if anyone is concerned about that, what you can do is drop, just drop a couple pills in a half a cup of water and then stir and then take a sip of the water. Mm -hmm. Now, you should stir at least for 30 seconds to get it um, infiltrated into the water. But that's something that you can do if you ever want, if you have the sugar pill or the lactose pill and you don't want to take that, but you could put it in water, dilute it one more time, but you need to stir it, you know, for a good 30 seconds. Well, I was, I was actually referring more to the placebo effect, which is well documented. Uh, sure. I mean, surprisingly so, I've seen research that even patients giving placebos and that they were told they were placebos. They said, this is a sugar pill. 30% of them still get better. 
It is yeah, just you know, I saw that work out of Harvard. It's an old friend of mine that did that research. Yeah. And that was that was fascinating. Ted uh, Ted so, Kapchuk. So how do you differentiate between the placebo effect and the benefits of homeopathy? Well, you know, when I take a, a, a when I see my patients, and I see most of my patients, by the way, on Zoom and Skype, mm -hmm. and so I see them all over the world. And then I mail them a homeopathic medicine. That's you don't have to have a homeopath in your local region. You can find a homeopath like myself that uses these modern technologies. I think of myself as, you know, uh, anyway, th this is the modern way. But, mm -hmm. you know, I take a detailed case of my patients. And what's surprising <laughs> is... history, right? Yeah. What's surprising is how not long, only... Does how, long, the, how long is your history typically? At a minimum of one hour. Okay. Minimum of one hour. And sometimes I need another 30 minutes or more in okay. complex cases. But what's fascinating is I then, after the second visit or third visit, say, well, what's happening with this secondary symptom or this other tertiary symptom? And they, they, they look at me and they go, oh, that's right. I used to have that. So I understand where there's a placebo effect when a person has a headache. And I also understand when a person has you know, some condition that comes and goes, it's like standing at the ocean and, and with a bucket and thinking that you're emptying the ocean even though the tide is going, going out. Mm -hmm. So you, you can pretend, you just happen to be there at the right time to make it seem as though you're having an effect. So with all my patients, when the patient gets better, I play the devil's advocate for them to really convince me that it was the remedy and not a placebo. Mm -hmm. At the other side, when people say, oh, I didn't get any effect, I take out their, their case history and I ask about this symptom, this symptom, this symptom. And in fact, this happened with my own sister. She had a serious problem. And um, I opened it up to the first thing and all of a sudden she realized, oh, that's right, that went away. Mm -hmm. So um, that's one of the ways that I differentiate. And then the second way is in that about 20% of our patients with chronic illness, our patients experience what's called a healing crisis first, where their symptoms get worse in some shape, way, or form in the first 48 hours. And sometimes they re-experience old symptoms that they haven't had in many months, years, or even decades. And usually a placebo doesn't do that. A placebo just has them get better. And so we see in homeopathy that the immune response is powerful enough that, that it can and will make the person uncomfortable. Uh, especially it brings out skin problems or women, it, they might have an early menstruation that will be clotted because it's almost like they're going through a detox. Mm -hmm. uh, but when they, begin talking about having old symptoms come back, you know, and then I find out what those symptoms were treated in an allopathic way and thus suppressed. Because, you know, one of the things that people have to understand is when we say that conventional medicines work, all too often that's the bad news. That means that they were effective in suppressing a symptom mm -hmm. and a disease and from a homeopathic point of view, the reason why there's more mental illness, the reason why there's more cancer and heart disease, and there, there's more chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction is because we treat acute illness in a suppressive way, we treat chronic illness in a suppressive way, and our body-mind is so brilliant that it does whatever it can to defend itself and heal. And whatever symptoms we're having are the best effort of our body at that time to defend ourselves. And if we cut off that defense, then it's like the body surrenders and our body gets suppressed and then develops a new serious syndrome. So I'm curious, uh, typically, uh, what is the frequency of the, someone who comes in to see you as a new patient? How often are you seeing him? Uh, I usually see patients around once a month. Once a month. And how long does it take to get them better? And what is the percentage of the people that see you are, are improving? I would say at least half of my patients notice significant effects within six months. Okay. So these are people that have had 
sometimes lifelong or chronic conditions. And, and the homeopath's definition of cure is so high that we don't even use the word cure, that we, we in, provide benefit and reduce main complaint and other, other complaints uh, to, so that the people feel better emotionally and feel better physically. We use the word freedom on a physical, on an emotional, and a mental level, so that people are not bound by or and limited um, to live the life that they want to live. And are there any specific illnesses that work better with homeopathic therapies uh, or get particularly it's, good results? You know, it, it's it's hard to say, but you know, respiratory allergies is one of our strong areas. And one of the things that some of us, for instance, have access to is homeopathic doses of not just different pollen in different sections of the United States. There's nine different regions and we have 40 different pollens from not just uh, trees, flowers, and grasses. And then we have separate formulas for different animals, hair and their dander, which is their skin. We have separate formulas for different mold um, and separate formulas for dust mites. And that's a really common problem. And another one for fragrances and solvents. So although we home in homeopathy like to provide what we call constitutional treatment, which is a remedy based on their person's genetic history, their overall personal history and their present symptoms, Sometimes we go into the bag and get and really pick out specific allergens as a way of helping specific ailments. And that's, a, that's another strategy. So the leading causes of death in the United States, so the three big ones, well, there's a number of them, but certainly cancer, heart disease, and then we've got diabetes and neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So uh, does homeopathy play a role in the treatment of those courses or would it be a, I would assume that yeah, would, yeah. Would I, I'm not going to get into the details of that because I'm not going to, I don't want to wave any red flags. Yeah, yeah. But, 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 but it, you'd have to address some lifestyle issues. It's not like a magic bullet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and to be honest, the care that I provide is I call it adjunctive homeopathic treatment. So it's in addition to whatever a person's doing. And sure. I admit that most of my patients are doing some conventional medicine, some homeopathy, and some other natural therapies. Mm -hmm. And I, so, so do I. So I don't discourage people from doing that. Um, what I do think is, is that 21st century medicine is this integrative model. It is the use of these different treatments. It is homeopathy. It is natural therapies. And when appropriate, conventional medicine. But I like to remind people that Hippocrates said it best first do no harm. Mm -hmm. So we should exhaust the natural therapies before resulting to the bigger guns of conventional medicine. And then, and then when we think that conventional medicine is scientific, please know that statistics show that last year, every man, woman, and a child in America was prescribed 13 prescription drugs. Mm -hmm. And there's no evidence of safety or efficacy of multiple drugs together. They don't do science that way. So conventional medicine is standing on jello. The evidence base is really limited. Yeah, and you know those numbers are incorrect because I haven't taken drugs in years. I'm sure you haven't taken prescription drugs and there's many other people watching this who haven't. So it's a lot more than 13 for most people. That's right, no, no, that's the average. So that's I what I say. The averages can be confusing. Someone's taking all 13 of mine, yeah, that's my all 13 too. of yours, yeah. you know. And, and, and it's sadly, it's our elders. There is yeah. elder medical Where abuse. Do you get the worse it gets. And, and I even call it medical child abuse. when children are given these powerful um, ADD medicines uh, when, when they really need to explore alternatives, safer alternatives. I know that, I mean, I, I see a fair amount of children uh, who are in the ADD, ADHD spectrum and on the autistic spectrum and on um, these various uh, panda spectrums um, uh, and um, 
you know, I do see homeopathy providing benefit, but the challenge is some, some people these days are just very sick. And, you know, we can just begin to begin to roll back and create increasing amounts of freedom and health. Yeah, and just one final comment on the FDA, and you mentioned all the drugs that people are taking, which the FDA has to approve and is loaded with these side effects, and most of them don't really have a justification. And at best, they treat symptoms, which can be dangerous, as you mentioned. But yet they're seeking to suppress homeopathic medicines, which don't certainly don't kill people. Like right. tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people are dying every year from appropriately prescribed medications and yet they're 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 doing this in the name of protecting the public health i mean yeah, is the, yeah. here's where your bullshit detectors need to go up your bullshit detectors need to go up because um it's so obvious that homeopathic medicines are are safe safer and uh, and anything that is being done to to reduce access by health and medical professionals to these safe medicines, and yet have complete access to so many conventional drugs, which are so dangerous, um, would be the epitome of, of a doctatorship. And that's my word I developed, and I, and I hope we don't move towards a doctatorship. Um, there is what I call medical chauvinism. There's the assumption that there's only one way to heal people. And you and I, and I bet every other person uh, listening to this knows that there are other methods and we do need to stand up for ourselves and we're not going to take it and we'll go out even with our pets you know our dogs and cats will demonstrate saying we don't want conventional drugs shoved down our children's throat our throats or our dog's throats or our cat's throats or any of our dear dear animal friends all right so if someone is interested in accessing homeopathic therapy, what would you recommend is the best way to do that? Go well, to homeopathic, uh, homeopathic.com. Homeopathic.com is a good source. Now, the National Center for Homeopathy is the leading organization. Uh, and they actually have a couple different websites. It's Nash, uh, the homeopathycenter.org is one source. And they have an annual conference. They have a bi-monthly magazine. They are doing the most important work. And then there's a group of mothers in Texas called um, uh, Homeo uh, Americans for Homeopathy Choice. And they've been putting together petitions for homeopathy, and I really support their work. And what's so great is mothers are leading the way. And, you know, we do need to put mothers really in front because they are the healthcare provider in most families. And, and bless the mothers out there that are, strongly advocating for homeopathy and using homeopathy and then learning uh, how to use a homeopathic medicine kit. Perfect. Well, um, any other words you'd like to say before we sign off or summarize well, I, and emphasize? I, I just want to thank all the people before me. I stand on the shoulders of giants, people not just in homeopathy, but in natural medicine. I stand on your shoulders, Dr. Mercola because you're providing a platform, a microphone, so that we can all learn and we can all act. We can all be healthier and then take the benefit of our health and help it share it with others. Yeah, well, great. Well, thank you for sharing your wisdom with us while the years you've been doing this, which is over 40 years now. Yeah, since yeah. 1973. <laughs> yeah, so that's... Uh, that's up there and you've acquired a lot of wisdom in those years. And, you know, to me, that's one of the tragedies of, of passing on is that unless you are able to share that in some effective way, either by teaching individuals or writing it down and creating videos, uh, then that information gets lost. So thank you for providing a legacy here and helping others to use this uh, effective tool to help so many different uh, illnesses. One last thing is, is that I know a lot of people go to Amazon to buy their homeopathic books and medicines and different things, but I want to encourage people out there to, when possible, 
use homeopathic sources and use natural medicine sources for getting your medicines because we have to support the organizations. We have to support the businesses that are in this field because if we don't do that, then when the FDA and other giants begin to attack homeopathy, who's going to be there to help us? Yeah, and how does one find those organizations? Well, you know, uh, you know, I just posted something uh, about how Facebook is beginning to uh, delete certain alternative medicine Facebook pages. Oh, yeah. And I was disgusted to hear that. And I hope that that comes to a rapid stop. No, no, it's not going to. In fact, we're, we're going to uh, be stopping our presence on Facebook very shortly. Uh, oh, because you are. Yeah, yeah. It's, Are I mean, they putting pressure on you to do that? No, but they'll, they'll eventually kick us off anyway, like they did Alex Jones, because we're fake news. And uh, anyway, it doesn't really matter because they're limiting not only our presence and effectiveness on that platform, because I think they throttle down your uh, post to like 10% of the people. Oh, are, no, no, no. Yeah. And they, they, they just did that. And it's going down. It's, I mean, it's, it's getting worse and worse and worse. So, I mean, it's, not, it's an ineffective platform anyway. And it's just another way of control. I mean, them and Google are the two big giants that seek to dominate and limit access to this type of information. So we're, we're essentially uh, limiting our exposure on both platforms, which is one of the reasons why we're doing Zoom on this, this interview. We switched off of Google. So. Right. Yeah. Well, bless you. And, uh, you know, may we defend ourselves and heal ourselves and heal the world. Great. Okay.